Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 122nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Abby Beringer, Student Programs Manager with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways through our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and creative social media content. Today, we are joined by two of our senior scholars, Dr. Jason Hill and Dr. Stephen Hicks, who will be discussing three contemporary topics for our current events webinar. We will save time at the end of each topic to take some audience questions questions. So throughout the discussion, please type your questions into the chat on Zoom, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, wherever you're joining us. And with that, I'm going to pass things off to Dr. Hicks to discuss uh, why we're seeing a decline in humanities majors at universities. All right, thanks. Also happy to be uh, joined with my fellow academic, uh, Dr. Jason Hill, who uh, we're both actually professors in Illinois of all places, so small world in that respect. And uh, this is something I've noticed at my own university, so I'll start with the, the local and then, and then scale out, is that uh, the number of students who are taking courses in the humanities, broadly conceived of as English literature, uh, sometimes sociology, anthropology, uh, philosophy, religion, even history, has been, uh, has been declining. And I had a news report, I don't have the link with me right now, but a news report showing, and uh, this is coming from a higher education sort, uh, uh, a source rather, um, that this is a, a national level trend. And of course, uh, people in the humanities are extraordinarily stressed about this. They've been to some extent in denial about it over the last uh, generation, but uh, the data are, are, are increasingly compelling. And so they're starting to get very, very worried about it. And so what is, what is interesting, though, is uh, that if you look at the range of uh, typical humanities courses, there's been a significant number uh, of students uh, less interested in philosophy, and it has been a, a significant decline. But the greater declines have been in history, uh, the greater declines also in English literature, greater declines even in religion. And so then the question is, uh, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Uh, and then even prior to that, why, uh, why, uh, why is that the case? Now, a few things uh, uh, I think that are worth pointing out is uh, a hypothesis could be that uh, the reason why we have a significant decline in the number of students taking humanities and correspondingly uh, uh, numbers in the social sciences are strong, psychology, uh, in the professional schools, students majoring in business, in education, in uh, nursing and pre-medicine, uh, uh, pre-law and so on. Those numbers are strong. Even the, uh, the STEM disciplines, uh, the numbers are consistent in the, the basic sciences and even increasing in, uh, in, in crossover areas like biotechnology uh, and uh, uh, kind of physics applied to engineering and areas of ro robotics. So all of those are, are showing <clears throat> um, consistent numbers or even very healthy growth. So well, you know, one of the reasons uh, that we could put out there just could be that uh, students go to university and they're looking for something meaningful, they're looking for something interesting, maybe they're looking for something sexy, they're looking for something that they can make a lot of money. And some fields do a really good job of marketing themselves in that area. You know, major here, you will get a job, and you will also have an interesting job. This is fun and innovative. So hypothesis one could be the business world is exciting. There's been a lot of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of talk about what's going on in STEM uh, and all of the advances there, and people, uh, people pick up on this. There's a lot of uh, awareness of uh, uh, medical issues, health issues, awareness of those things, and these are positive areas, and so people are attracted to the positive. So that's one hypothesis, and that would just mean that the humanities haven't marketed themselves well for, for the next generation. Another hypothesis I've been considering is that what has been a trend over the course of the last 40, 50 years, and this has been co coinciding with the marked steady decline in the humanities, is the number of first-generation students going to college and the an, an increase in the number of immigrant children and children of first-generation immigrants who are going to college. So it could be that there is a demographic push that when you are first-generation immigrant, 
or you are the first generation of uh, uh, in your family, so to speak, to go to college, what you are thinking primarily of is career advancement. You're looking for something that you think is going to be practical. It's going to get you a job. It's going to be a meal ticket in some way. Now, whether people are accurate in their assessment of which disciplines are going to do that, that's a related question. But that would then say uh, parents and these students are then more likely to push for go into business, go into nursing, go into engineering, uh, uh, where you're going to get a job. Don't study art, history, and philosophy of religion, for goodness sake. What kind of job are you going to get? So the numbers then are reflective of a shifting demographic toward more first-generation students and more first-generation immigrant students uh, getting into, into universities, where we might then say two, three generations ago, we had a more traditional uh, uh, bifurcation in the, in the demographics, and you would have students who are going to university who were coming from second, third generation. Uh, you know, everybody in our family goes to university and they're more financially comfortable. They're more on board with the, uh, the story that we like to tell about the empoweringness of the, the great books and the big minds and being a Renaissance person and so on. But that's not the demographic that we're dealing with right now. So I think of that as a, as a second hypothesis. Now, the third hypothesis is actually the, uh, the one that came to my, my first mind was that maybe the explanation is that the humanities have shot themselves in the foot over the course of the last generation. What we are finding uh, in the humanities is an increasing amount of skepticism, cynicism, relativism, adversarialism. And so that rather than say literature professors teaching great literature, instead they have politicized their departments or they've turned them into various kinds of postmodern ghettos. And so what they are doing, and it's not just English literature, but it's, uh, it's going to be more broadly across the humanities is saying, we think the world sucks. We think that you are, uh, you're, you're in a corrupt society. Everything is hopeless. Uh, and we want you to put you at war with society and with each other. And when students come in, they are repelled by that message. So we have students who are young and idealistic. They want something positive. But every time they go into their humanities courses, or at least the overall message is, is something, uh, something negative. And so they vote with their feet and say, OK, if you require me, I'll take a couple of humanities courses for breadth, but I'm not going to take a minor in it. I'm not going to major in it. I'm going to go off and find something actually meaningful and worthwhile to do. And that's going to be some of the other disciplines. So those are uh, it's just three hypotheses. I really just float them as hypotheses for, for further discussion. But I do also have one, one further thought that, uh, that this might be an opportunity for us, particularly those of us who are objectivists or who are uh, especially objectivists, you know, who believe in the power of philosophy, the power of the big ideas, the power of being broadly educated, uh, that if students are not getting this, in their traditional college and university careers, there is a bit of a, a vacuum there, or at least there is an unfulfilled market that if through uh, some sort of entrepreneurial or non-standard approach, we can reach those people, we can give them what we know that they need and they, they kind of know that they need it as well. So that's uh, my, my, my take on that first topic. Hey, uh, Jason, do you have uh, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, to add a few points. I think Stephen covered exhaustively some of the reasons why we're seeing a decline in the, in the majors and the humanities. Um, one thing that I have noticed over the past 25 years that I have been teaching is that the decline in the majors and the humanities correlate to a rise in increasing rise in tuition fees. So whereas even when I was student teaching at Purdue University, um, 27 years ago, 28 years ago, before I became a, a full, you know, a professor, students would take classes in philosophy for personal reasons, for self-development, for self-actualization. And the tuitions were not as stratospheric as they were today. So they could still justify mm -hmm. it in their minds that I'm taking a class in philosophy, I'm majoring in philosophy. I don't know yet what I'll do with it. Maybe I'll go into journalism there were certain fields that were still open to philosophy, uh, like being going into nonprofit, 
going into even corporations who there was a perception that corporations were open to philosophy majors because they were malleable, because they were critical thinkers, because they were those sorts of individuals who were, who were teachable. And I think that that perception has left the minds of many students. I don't know that there are many corporations today who think of philosophy majors as ideal candidates for employment. They think of them really as these woke, radical leftists. Now, whether that's true, I, I have no way of, 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 of um, you know, backing that up. It's that sort of conjecture, but I think in the minds of a lot of students and minds of a lot of employers that's going on. So this, the, we see a, a correlation between the, the decline in the humanities majors and the rise in, in tuition fees. And, and I think a lot of students just find it very, very hard, especially if they're, like as Stephen said, first, first um, immigrant, first generation students in, in, the, in the classroom, in the universities, justifying this sort of move. Um, the other thing also that comes to mind is that um, a point that Stephen just made about the sort of adversarial position vis-a-vis -vis the humanities and the way they have comported themselves and the interests of the students. Um, I think Ayn Rand said it best when she said the purpose of an education is to teach students how to live, um, or to, to live one's life, to develop one's mind and to, to, to equip the individual to deal with reality, right? And that the training that the person needs is theoretical, it's conceptual. Well, what we find happening in the humanities, given the criminalization of reason and logic in, the, in this cult, and I think this is not a conjecture, this is quite, this is quite serious with the, the sort of cult of cultural relativism that we find suffusing the academic atmosphere and the extent to which in a lot of university, there's a, a kind of woke ideology that is permeating the universities. I mean, I keep track of this. It's not only, um, it's not only myself who's receiving uh, documentations or letters from the administration saying, have you decolonized your syllabi yet? Which means have you sort of either rid it of canonical white European male thinkers or have you made it more pluralistic? Um, there's a politicization, an overt politicization of, of, of knowledge where students are coming in and they're finding that other students or the administration is imposing on them um, not objective learning but or teaching, but activism and advocacy. So the, the whole purpose of the humanities was to teach one to, to use one's mind critically and to think. And I think students come in and they're confused. Some of them come in fully indoctrinated through the K through 12 system, fully woke and really want, and I see this quite often where my students are rejecting Locke, they're rejecting John Stuart Mill because they say explicitly to me that these men were racist because one wrote the, the, the North, the South Carolina, I think was the South Carolina constitution and one worked for the East India Company. So they Google these thinkers and they say they're racist and we're not reading them. So I think the humanities uh, are in a flux, are in profound, are going through profound changes right now where they have lost their mission, their goal, which was to, to teach about the human condition among other things. And they have turned largely into indoctrination centers for many in the minds of many students. And students are either latching onto this or students are, a student, as Stephen said, are repelled by this. But it's just not really clear today, the larger question, what is the function of a liberal arts education in 2022 today? Mm -hmm. I think students even leaving K through 12, right? Having gone through some semblance of a liberal arts education, understood what it meant as the beneficiaries of a college education, what it would mean to be the beneficiary of a liberal arts education. But I think that question is lost upon society in general. And if it's lost upon society in general, if, if humanities professors themselves cannot answer the question, what today is the purpose of a liberal arts education? What are we, what are we disseminating as, as educators? We leave our students very, very, very conceptually confused. And I think Stephen is absolutely right. They'd much rather go into a discipline where there's a sort of certainty, where there's a certain sort of predictability vis-a-vis -vis 
outcomes, income, income expectations, and the amount of work that they put into their classes, mm-hmm. rather than this sort of radical subjectivity and uncertainty uh, that correlates to very, very um, high tuition rates. So I think the very fact that we as a society in general, as individual professors, I certainly, and I think Stephen knows, we all have strong ideas of what a liberal arts education ought to be doing or how it ought to be functioning. But that the moral grammar for this is up for grabs and that this is communicated to students does not make it very attractive Mm -hmm. for a student who has, for the most part, students who are not going to state schools. And even if you're going to state school, it's still pretty expensive right now for a lot of students to pay this sort of money Mm. for this kind of uncertainty. A follow-up thought, if I could, uh, struck by your remark about uh, Rand and the purpose of education to to prepare one how to live. And that prompted another hypothesis that also over the course of the last generation, really going back to the 90s, we've seen a rise of uh, new technologies and a huge boom in the amount of television programming and a huge boom in the number of uh, movies, uh, and then the entire you know Netflix and Amazon Prime, and so on. Just a, a huge explosion in the amount of stuff that is available to you, and all of that is drama and dramatization. And some of it is contemporary, and it's dealing with political events, some and, and moral issues, and just all of the other issues that come up in the course of life. You know, love and sex and relationships and uh, an adventure. And some of it is uh, historically based. You know, there's just a huge number of historical dramas and documentaries and so on. So one hypothesis might be that uh, students are over the course of the last generation already getting exposed to lots of literature, lots of drama, lots of history, lots of politics, lots of morality outside of formal schooling. And so by the time they come to a university, they're starting to say, well, I don't really need this uh, in the way that say 50 years ago, when we were more starved for media, we, uh, we might've said, I do want to be exposed to all of this. And so when I go to university, I can, I'm more likely then to look at uh, my university of ed- uh, education as something more applied, more technical, more career oriented. So that might then be a, a fourth hypothesis to consider. I think that's right. And, 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 and conjoined with the fact that readership in general is declining in our society mm-hmm. and the students increasingly find it very difficult to handle broad, huge pages of, of texts. I find mm-hmm. that I have to increasingly each year assign fewer um, literal pages to my students because they are, they are reading less and less outside of, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of their classes. That I think you're right, Stephen. That they that they sort of amass this sort of information from a, what either what Rand would call a sense of life or a direct sort of experience of of, of life itself and of, of narratives that they draw from drama that they would get from let's say the brothers Karamazov or Crime and Punishment or, or the Fountainhead or 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 Dickens, you know, or Nietzsche. Um, yes, yes, very much so. I think this is very. Much- yeah, so just you know, watching uh, my my kids when they've grown up and all of the the shows that they watch, and a lot of them are much more sophisticated than the kinds of shows I would watch when I was a when I was a kid. But nonetheless, you know, even if you think of the ones that are more like sitcoms, there's always a range of character types, and they're put in conflict with each other, and there are various uh, moral dilemmas, sometimes about honesty and integrity and loyalty and backstabbing. Uh, and of, of course, all kinds of contemporary issues get folded in. And so they all get explored and the, the kids absorb all of these over the course of a season. And uh, so then why do we need a formal course uh, introducing introduction to ethics when I've already covered all of those issues? Or it's basically a, a novel that has been transliterated into a visual form for the, for the screen. All right. Well, we do have uh, quite a few questions. So I want to get to those. I have so many thoughts as someone who just graduated. I do think uh, the drama was, I was a political science major. Uh, I s- experienced um, quite a lot of the drama that you guys were mentioning from students to the point where sometimes it, it chilled speech, actually, I would say, for both professors and students. Um, mm. 
when leftists would, oh, I remember the professors banning certain topics if, if conversations got too heated in political science classrooms. You think that'd be not cool. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the Euro crisis. We're not going to talk about Palestine, Israel, because it's too controversial. And so oh that goodness. doesn't help. Yeah. Um, but our first question here, Zach Carter on Instagram wants to know, are people being warned away from the humanities because of the quality of humanities professors? Many seem to just have classes that waste time or are just there to sell textbooks. Mm. So uh, you, you do hear that argument sometimes. Professors are just trying to sell textbooks. What are uh, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, on that, I can uh, speak to my personal experiences at uh, the universities I've been at. I have noticed, uh, I think this would be a safe but qualified generalization that my fellow humanities professors don't take education as seriously as the professors in other disciplines. So I've noticed uh, over the course of my career, uh, fewer final exams, for example. And sometimes it's, it is a matter of, well, you know, those are just really hard work and that's too demanding and too stressful for the students. So I'm, I'm going to back away from doing anything that's too, too stressful. And then uh, a certain amount of it I know just is accommodations. By the time you get to the end of the semester, the end of the academic year, of course, everybody's tired and wants a break, but uh, uh, professors who assign final exams know that they are setting themselves up for lots and lots of close and careful reading of all of those final exams and taking that as a very serious project. But uh, if you're not particularly accountable as, as most professors are not, there are lots of ways you can make your workload much lighter. And I have noticed uh, you know, quite frequently that my, my, uh, my office building where uh, the humanities professors by and large would be a ghost town on exam week, but you would go into the other buildings, the science building, the business building, and so on. And those are still hives of kind of quiet activity as exam week is being taken very seriously. And then uh, you know, various things like instead of having longer papers expected from the students, uh, the, the paper requirements tended to get shorter and shorter uh, and, and so on. So uh, I do think that's a safe generalization that there is a overall a lower level of seriousness in the humanities about their discipline. I think that's going to be communicated to the students. I, I couldn't agree more with, with Stephen. And I think, I think what I see among the professoriate in the humanities is something very, very dangerous, which is education thrives on hierarchy. And just like mathematics, you can't learn multiplication before you've learned addition and subtraction. And I find among the professoriate a tendency to dehierarchize the classroom where in the sciences, things are very, in a strict system of hierarchy, there is an expert, there is a professor who's the authority. I find it annoyingly, uh, increasingly so, that professors in the, in the, especially in the philosophy departments and the literature departments, tend to think of students as, we're all co-facilitators, we're all part of one big community where we're, we're equals here and we're going to explore the truth together. And the students know as much as the professor does. And we're going to break down this hierarchical structure between professor and student. And I didn't spend five, four and a half years getting a PhD in philosophy and reading philosophy for the past 35 years of my life and having taught Locke for 22 years to come and visit some you know, person raised his sophomoric high school opinion to the level of human knowledge who has barely read the first page of the second treatise to tell me that he knows about as much about Locke as I do. Yeah. But I think, I think this is true. And I think there are serious students in the classroom who are subject to these bull sessions where it's just discussion run, run, run amok and, and there's no structure. And this is encouraged in this age of relativism by professors who deliberately want to break down this notion of hierarchy and authority and, 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 and to de-emphasize their expertise uh, for various, various reasons. Yeah, I think another factor uh, can be, if you think of the, the sciences, uh, in the sciences, uh, professors are also doing research and for the research they need to raise funds. They do a lot of grant writing, but they have to show the relevance in some way, even if they're doing higher, you know, highly theoretical things that aren't going to pay off for 10, 20 years or, or more. 
So they're much more reality oriented. But in the human, but that point of that is that it keeps them accountable in a way. If their careers are going to advance, then they uh, they need to, to to stay on the ball. In the humanities, there's much less of a tradition of getting funding, and most professors know that. Well, you know, I might publish a book and get some royalties out of that, but that's going to be peanuts. Uh, and for the most part, I'm just going to be a teacher and maybe write some obscure academic articles, but I'm not going to have any sort of uh, financial accountability. And so a lot of them just give up uh, relatively uh, early on in their in their careers. And uh, tenure means not necessarily early retirement, but something close to uh, early retirement. That's very interesting with the inside mm -hmm. perspective. Um, one, we'll do one more question on this topic. Uh, just so you guys know, if we have time at the end, we'll come back to questions from previous topics. We'll do one more quick question before we move on to our next topic. Uh, Anthony on YouTube wants to know, uh, what are your views? Um, he says, Jason, but we both can give your thoughts here on why so many young people are looking to conform in uh, universities today. Mm. Well, uh, you know, Rand was asked this question in the realm of, 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 of values. And I think people are, I think she's right that people are deathly afraid of, of being alone, of standing alone on issues when it comes to defending their moral positions. And, but I would add also that when you are young and you are, your brain is still developing and your identity is still forming, social ostracism is a very, very painful um, experience to have and so the conformity i'm a little bit sympathetic here i don't i because because these are young people who are looking for a sense they're liberated from the the prison cells of their parents homes for the first time and they're looking for a sense of camaraderie and a sense of community and the last thing they really want when they go on a college campus is to experience a lot of alienation that's the charitable view they want they want a sense of camaraderie they want a sense of community hmm. and and the sense of ostracism that is visited upon one when one dares to think independently for oneself to go against received wisdom, to go against orthodoxy is very, very painful. However, having said that, I don't think that you can cheat or fake reality. I do think that these are still young bargaining adults who do have a responsibility to prepare an identity that they will have to live out for the rest of their lives. And so this is more a normative response that, so they, they ought to begin the process of learning how to sort of toughen up and to stand their ground. And more importantly, that this is not a closed, the, her, the university is not a closed hermetically sealed environment, that there are like-minded people whom they can look to or pick, pick out, you know? Uh, um, and, and, and so think independently and choose kindred spirits who, who, with whom you have an affinity. But but the, 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 to answer the question, I just think it's 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 when one is 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 still also in that developing state of not really knowing what one really really thinks. One is in a bargaining state of developing one's convictions, one's identity. That's what a good classroom is there for to, for you to intellectually mull through your 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 growing and your budding convictions rather than have them distorted by these 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 conceptually mind wrecking professors that we have in the humanities. Uh, it makes it very, very difficult for 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 students, and and the and the and the desire to conform just seems a little bit more attractive. As uh, Professor Hill was talking, I think that was very well said. But I was thinking about the uh, the fountainhead, which uh, I know I can get beat up for this one, but I think is in some way a deeper novel than Atlas Shrugged is uh, on 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 this this theme. Is it an interesting in, in that? We tend to think a lot about economics and political issues and our focus there. Uh, and, uh, but this issue of psychology, individual psychology and how you become a real individual in a social context might be the more important and pressing issue. And so you think about the theme of the fountainhead, of course you have Howard Rourke and you've got Peter Keating and uh, Dominique Francon and all these fascinating characters. But the question that Rand is asking is this question about independence and integrity and what it really takes. And you can see the, the question that she has on her mind, particularly as a re relatively recent immigrant from Russia coming to the United States, which is 
the freest country in the world. It's also the richest country in the world. And yet there are so many conformists in this culture. There are so many Peter Keatings, so to speak, uh, and so many other people out there such that Gail Winan can become a multimillionaire giving people crap of various sorts. So the issue that Americans were facing, uh, Rand was saying in, in the early middle part of the 20th century, it's not political repression, they're free. It's not that they are poor because they are in the richest country in the world. And so they don't have to like fight to put food on the table and a roof over their head or fight for freedom. They've got basically everything, but so many of them still can't manage that basic independence necessary to put together uh, a, a really meaningful life. And so that's the problem that she's addressing in that novel. And it's a, it's a deep one. So uh, I guess where I'm leading, even though I'm a philosopher and I love Atlas Shrugged for the range of issues that are going on here, there are these kind of core moral issues that are being flagged in, in, uh, in the fountainhead, working with very good psychology, both individual psychology and social psychology. We need a lot more work there to really answer that question fully. Excellent responses, very inspiring. I hope there are young people listening who uh, bring up some moral courage and then read the fountain, of course. I think next year's the anniversary. So we'll, we're gonna do a book club on it. Stay tuned for that. Nice. <laughs> and with that, we're gonna move on to our second topic, um, the legislative responses to CRT and LGBTQ views in schools. So I will hand it off to whoever wants to, to start there first. I'm going to defer to Stephen. Uh, okay, let me uh, share my screen then because I wanted to, oops, says host disabled participant screen sharing. Uh, I, I, I need to be able to share my screen, Abby uh, and or Lawrence in the background. So please give me the power. I think, so I'll start. I think you just got it. I think uh, Lawrence okay, just good. Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> I want to go this one here. This is a very useful site. I can, uh, we can share the link uh, on, online later, but it's uh, some people who are opposed to various sorts of uh, pieces of legislation that are being proposed, mostly at the state level around the country with respect to uh, legislating legislation rather limiting uh, the teaching of critical race theory and various sorts of uh, LBGQT, types of uh, theories as well. So the context is that over the course, of course, in the last uh, decade or so, we've seen a rise of uh, uh, issues with respect to sexuality and issues with respect to race. Those have become our front burner issues. And we've got some fairly radicalized theories that are leading the pack in, uh, in both, of those, both of those areas to the point where they have come out of high academic theory, They've worked their way through the education schools, and now they are working their way into, uh, into, into the curriculum. So uh, critical race theory uh, in all of its specific doctrines or certain approved views with respect to sexuality and transgenderism and so on are working their way into the curriculum such that many parents and politicians and others are, 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 are outraged by this. And uh, they are mounting, of course, arguments against it, but they are also mounting political campaigns against them. So I wanna raise this issue of what is the appropriate way to respond to CRT? Now, I think CRT is a, a terrible theory. Uh, everybody basically is against racism as far as I, I know, or at least 95% of the population. Uh, everybody is in favor of uh, you know, equal rights and liberties and so forth and, uh, and, and so on. But what you have is a very jaded, cynical theory, critical race theory that says, basically, the races hate each, other, hate each other. Everything is power politics in an adversarial sense. White people happen to be the ones in power and they just use their power to keep everybody else down and just hypocritically once in a while mouth, equal rights and liberties types, uh, types of, of language. And the people who are the leaders of critical race theory are explicitly drawing on the leading postmodernist theories. They're explicitly drawing on Frankfurt School critical theorists 
and, and they are anti-enlightenment all of the way through. So as a philosophical theory, as an applied theory with respect to racism and so on, I think it is, it's a disaster and it is completely wrong. And I do agree that it has made great inroads with respect to uh, transforming uh, curricula and methodologies inside many of the public schools. But there is an issue about how appropriately to respond to this politicization of racial issues or politicization of sexual issues inside the public school. So I do commend this list that there's an, any number of states where uh, uh, state senators or state representatives, all of them Republicans, as it turns out, are proposing bills. And there's a lot of different kinds of bills with a lot of different languages, uh, restricting, uh, banning, uh, sometimes calling for more transparency, uh, sometimes requiring consent from parents before certain things can be taught. So there's a lot of legislative action. And so this is a good way of, of keeping tabs on that. I do want to though put out what the general issue is. Now, granted that somewhere between 90 and 95% of all students in the country go to government funded schools. Public education is huge. And so uh, it's not going to go any way, uh, away anytime soon. So the question is going to be how we should think about these issues in the short to medium term. So if a really cancerous ideology does seem to be making inroads in government-run schools, what is the appropriate way of dealing with that cancerous ideology? Now, there, I think there is, a, there is a legitimate dilemma here that politicians are going to be, going to be facing. And it's the, the same kind of dilemma that in a mixed economy you're always going to have. Right. A mixed economy mis mixes <laughs> things that should be done freely with things that should be done by compulsion. And so it always leads to dislocations and there's never going to be a, a happy solution. You always have to choose between two evils uh, in that case. So one side of the dilemma here really is from the perspective of politicians is whether we agree or not, we have government schools, we're taking people's tax dollars, we're making parents send their children to these schools, and I am an elected representative of the people, and so therefore I have a fiduciary responsibility and a moral responsibility, and I swore an oath to represent my constituents on this and to make sure that tax dollars are spent in a way with respect to genuine education. And so if I've got ideological education or something that I think is false education or destructive education, my responsibility as a politician then is to use political tools in order to counter that inappropriate kind of education. But political tools do mean uh, you know, uh, uh, oversight, firing people, uh, uh, banning uh, certain ideas and so on. So censorship and control of people and so on. But the argument for that comes out of the kind of responsibility that we have given to those politicians in this, in this mixed economy. So that's one side of the dilemma that points in the direction of saying that politicians are acting within their rights to ban certain ideas and vote for the banning of those ideas if they think they are false and or otherwise to, uh, to regulate what goes on inside the schools. Now, the other side of the dilemma though is that all of history teaches us that the political control of ideas, political control of the schools causes uh, disaster. Either one side becomes uh, dictatorial and cements its political position. And so the debate stops inside schools and schools become indoctrination centers. And then if that doesn't happen, the only other thing that happens is that uh, if there are regime changes inside the government school system, but education has become a political football, then what happens to education is one side gets in power for a while. It tries to ban the other side's ideas and ram its own ideas into the curriculum. Then it gets uh, ousted in, in, in some way. The other side gets in and it starts to try to ram its own ideas down people's throat and ban the other side's ideas. And so what you then have is education increasingly becomes politicized and a football and education stops. So both of those are, are real concerns. And then the question only is for us, if we are stuck with government schools for the foreseeable future, what uh, should our position be with respect to 
that, that those two dilemma, which is the, the lesser of two evils that we should endorse in a more qualified sense. Now, I'm going to jump in and say, in my view, the politicization uh, and having government uh, offices have stricter controls on what can be taught in school, tighter oversight of the curriculum, banning particular ideas, and having various kinds of ideological tests with respect to teachers, anything in that area. That is the worst danger in the medium to long term because there's a ratchet effect. Once the government gets control and things become politicized, it's very hard to go back. The ratchet typically just goes downhill in a worse and worse direction. So that then leads me to say that as odious as I think CRT ideas are, as odious as I think many of the ideas about sexuality are, I don't think we should ban those in the schools. Instead, what I think we should be doing is following the sunlight is the best disinfectant strategy. Parents care about their children. Once they become aware of these issues, they get involved. And as these things have been publicized, we are seeing huge waves of parents getting involved. There are lots of other teachers out there who uh, they have their teaching positions. We can inform them and they are aware of these issues from their position of power. There are other administrators inside the school system also who are on the other side or various other sides of the debates as well. So what I would say is sticking to our guns as people who believe in liberalism, broadly speaking, and liberal education more specifically, that would say, all right, so we were caught sleeping by various ideological movements that have made serious inroads in the schools. Uh, now what we need to do is get ourselves up to speed, get the ideas out there, uh, do better journalism, engage the arguments, uh, and reform the schools that way. The temptation, and I understand the temptation of going the political route, is a dangerous temptation. And I do think that uh, with healthy discussion, with healthy journalism, we can win these arguments. And I think that's uh, something that we have to uh, set ourselves up for psychologically, that if we are generally going to have a free society, there's going to be hundreds of issues that we are debating simultaneously. And sometimes we are going to be losing on some of those issues or the other sides get momentum. Uh, but rather than give up on liberalism and go the politicization and political controls direction on those issues, what we need to do is say, okay, we're losing on those ones. We need to get our game up to a higher level and win that debate. So I would say uh, some of these uh, restrictions you know, are arguable. They're, they are borderline, but I think most of these are dangerous direction to go down and we should not endorse them. All right, Jason, do you have a response? Yeah, can you see me? Because my screen has completely blocked out. I can um, see you. Okay, great, all right. Uh, oh yeah, I can see myself now. I, I um, think that it's a very, very confusing issue, um, complicated issue in many respects. But I, but I want to say a couple, couple of things sort of as a preamble to what I'm ultimately going to say is that there are many, many, um, candidates for knowledge claims that um, compete for inclusion in any curriculum. And there's a vetting process, right? From, you know, should, should students be taught the virtues of eating broccoli in school? I mean, I'm sure that there are any number of individuals who broach that subject as something that should be taught. So there are any number of, of, of candidates that, that, that are all sorts of knowledge claims that, that compete for inclusion in the curriculum. And there's a vetting process that takes place. Um, someone looks at these narratives and makes a decision um, within on boards of education and so, so forth and say that we're going to include these subjects in the curricula and no, we're going to exclude some of these knowledge claims that are competing for inclusion. So it's not that every single knowledge claim has to be included in a child's educational curriculum. 
So when I look at critical race theory, I think the idea of banning anything is is very dangerous. It's an incendiary, um, dangerous um, ideology that's predicated on a lot of falsities and um, untruths. And one of the things that I think we should be talking about is when we vet these in quotes, knowledge claims, can they pass certain philosophic meaning, philosophical meaning tests? Can they pass the rigors of scientific meaning tests and so on and so forth? And if they cannot, then on that basis, they're just not included without even getting to the subject of banning anything. They're just not included in the curriculum. So I, I find critical race theory to be parts of it, to be guilty of hate speech, but let's not even go the road of banning hate speech. Let's just say that objectively speaking, there have been, and there will continue to be once we have government schools and private schools do this, a way of vetting knowledge claims that are vying for inclusion into a curriculum. And if they fail certain meaning tests, they don't get included. And I think if we went that, tried to strive for that objective road, then critical race theory would just not be included. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't even have gotten to the situation of banning, uh, a conversation of banning in the way that nobody's talking about banning, whether or not we should, you know, have running experiments to see if lions can mate with, 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 with whales. I mean, that would just be an absurd knowledge claim. Nobody would mm. take that quite seriously be laughed laughed out of a, a, a room. So I think the same sort of philosophic meaning test should be applied to all knowledge claims, including critical race theory. And when they're vetted quite thoroughly, we'll see how both nonsensical, untrue, and that it's a purely conjectural, in most for the most part, conjectural ideological form of activism that is meant to inflict harm on white children. I've written about this. And um, and we could just bypass the whole banning procedure that way. Mm -hmm. um, if that doesn't work, I am going to reluctantly, because I'm such a First Amendment, almost absolutist, um, I mean, speech is contextual, but I'm going to say that Stephen is right, that let the light of the sun shine on the filth that is much of critical race theory to expose its falsities and its false claims and bring in more parental awareness um, and for the changes to occur on a more organic and democratic way in the sense that parents are paying for their students' education through their taxes and they should have some say in what and how their children are being socialized under these government schools. Yeah, okay, nicely said. At the we same time, uh, just let me say one more thing that uh, you know, say in the long term, uh, we, we might not be stuck with government schools, but because I, I am encouraged that there's a huge number of entrepreneurial experiments going on in the education space right now. So what seems like this uh, unassailable government monopoly of the last century uh, it, it could go the way of the dinosaurs sooner than we than we expect. So we hope so. Yeah. yeah. Well, and on sort of on that note, uh, my modern girl asks: Many teachers have stated that they'll ignore government mandates in order to keep teaching CRT and LGBTQ ideas in in their classrooms. So if there's no apparatus for parents to actually vote with their dollar and get these people removed, what are we to do? Um, I want to show one more slide if I can. Thank you, uh, I think you have the power. I have the power. <laughs> there we are. Here we are. So um, <clears throat> one of the uh, states that has been stricter with respect to bans, uh, inappropriately in my sense, again, far, pretty far over the line, was uh, specifically banning various books and uh, wanting to have the certain books cleared out of the library and so on. And so here was an Oklahoma teacher who was not going as far as the, the questioner was saying, just saying, here's a list of books that have been uh, put on a banned list. I'm going to let, give my students access to those books by 
get, telling them, here are some internet sites that you can go to to find these books that have been banned. So she wasn't teaching the books. Uh, instead, she was just giving them access, but they were uh, going after her as well. So the scrutiny can go all the way down. And I think it is a disaster right, when we get to get to this level as well. So what I would say is, uh, my, my first response would be to say, uh, I, independently of what the issue is, if there's a politician who has banned certain books and the rule comes down and we have a teacher who's courageous enough to say, I don't think politicians should be telling us, the educational professionals, which books we're allowed to teach and is willing to push back to argue against that kind of ban on principle, I would say more power to those teachers. At the same time, uh, uh, I endorse what uh, Professor Hill was saying just a little while ago, people who are interested in saying, all right, let's show that we, the educators, can have this organic discussion, that we have good standards for deciding what gets into the curriculum and what doesn't. We're having open discussion about that. We're trying to keep up with the, the literature. Uh, uh, we're keeping the parents informed. And we're, we, we can show that we're not doing indoctrination. We're actually interested in uh, presenting all or both sides of, of controversial issues. And so organically getting their act together so they can push back against the politicians, that I think is the, the healthier way to go. Right, and I, I would just add one more thing. I, I, I went to school and I grew up in Jamaica, went to a very strict private Catholic school and we started school, high school at the age of 10 or 11. And uh, we didn't start talking about issues of sexuality or sex until, until one entered puberty. It was called sex education. You were not permitted to, teachers were not permitted to, to have us read books with, with sexual material until the, the, the nuns and the priests thought that physiologically we were ready for that, which is when you entered puberty. But I, but I remember also there were some risque books in the library and um, if you wanted to sign those out, if you wanted to check those out, you really had to get consent from your parent. There was one, believe it or not, I can't believe this book was in there, but it was um, The Joys of Marital Sex. And um, you had to have been um, almost approaching graduation before you could check that book out and you had to get the, the consent of your parent. So I, I think it's great that, that, that there are these you know, because short of living in a bloated totalitarian state, I'm not going to, which I don't endorse, I'm not going to say that teachers shouldn't have the right to, to recommend reading books to students. But at the same time, we have to think that we don't want a fourth grader being exposed to a book. Well, I think most people would think it's inappropriate, a book in which there's explicit sexual or overt violence in a book. So, in a in a, in a, in a book. So I think that parents and exercise properly jurisdiction over their children's lives. And I think that if, a, if, a, if a, given the age of the child, if the, if the, if the librarian wants to assign a, a list of books to the student, I don't see it being as unreasonable to get the parental consent uh, as a precondition for doing so. I don't, I think that's one way of, of, of sort of circumventing the whole issue of banned books being kept away from students that a parent should just like how parents regulate what their children watch at home on television or judicious parents do i think that same sort of um judiciousness could be applied when it comes to the question of books that are being banned yeah i think entirely that's the, that's the right approach on the spreadsheet i was displaying a few minutes ago some of the proposals do with respect to sexuality issues uh, just imposed age limits. Uh, certain issues can't be raised before children are age six, or other issues can't be raised before children are age nine, 12, or, or whatever it is. So I think the impulse behind all of that is entirely right. You know, uh, children are developmental creatures physically and psychologically, including in their, uh, their sexual development. And so uh, there should be expertise among the teachers about what kind of sexuality issues are introduced when and what the appropriate resources, right, and so on. And so all of that should be uh, a normal part of 
curriculum discussion by the teachers and the administrations and in consultation with the, with the parents as we all learn more about developmental biology, developmental psychology, and so on. And I think it's entirely appropriate then, as you were suggesting, you know, that librarians who would be part of this conversation would then say, well, here are the books that we judge you know, kids can read after they enter puberty. Here are ones that they can read after age nine and, and, and so on. So the issue really here is who should be making that judgment. And if we're getting to the point where it's politicians, we're asking politicians to decide <laughs> what books uh, we can read with respect to uh, sexuality, uh, teachers and administration, we're going to override, then something has gone, gone very much awry. So the, the political decision, we need to have that Chinese wall, so to speak, as much as we possibly can. And, and kind of on that note of you're talking a little bit about parental authority, um, there's a question here about parental responsibility. So Amethyst Sheen on Twitter wants to know why did slash do parents seem to ignore their uh, children's education? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a sad subject. I know, Jason, do you <laughs> want to take that one up first? Well, uh, this is something I, I, don't, I don't think this is always true. I think in good faith, parents handed over their children to the public school system, the K through 12 system and to universities and say, look, I hand my child over as uh, to an institution that is going to continue the continued socialization that I have started in the home. Because if you hand your child over to, to a government school or a private school, there is some, whether one believes in anything like socialization, there is some continued developmental part of one's psychological, emotional, and moral state that is continuing. And um, so I don't think it's that they don't care. I think that they're just trusting. They have been trusting. They've, they've done this in good faith. And now they've seen the kind of malarkey and the kind of nonsense that, and the kind of overt politicization of the classroom. And, and I think COVID played a huge role where parents were at home with their children and, and seeing firsthand what was being taught in these classrooms, the political, um, the, the overt politicization of, of subjects and have become increasingly concerned as they should have been all along, but not, you know, to the point where you're going to sort of like try to micromanage your child's education if you make a decision to hand your child over. Mm -hmm. I think there has to be some good faith in that. But I don't think it's true that they've always been disinterested in their children's education. I just think that uh, uh, short of cynicism and 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 then radical skepticism, most parents have just sort of in good faith trusted these institutions to act in a proper and appropriate manner towards their children. Yeah. No, I think that uh, that latter judgment call is right. I think most parents are in that category. It's been you know, life is busy. There is a division of labor. These schools are available. I trust. That teachers uh, like doctors and, and other people are, are, are professionals and so on. And so there is a, a benevolent trust there that has properly been eroded significantly in the last few years. Now, whether most parents are in that category, I think that's true. But I do want to say I've been impressed with some of the school districts that I have firsthand knowledge of with the large number of parents who are very actively involved. So you know, they, they do have some trust but they also, they show up to every parent teacher meeting. They're there for the orientations. They're studying their children's uh, grade reports and they're emailing teachers. They're very actively involved. And there's a lot of them who are, who are, who are doing so. Uh, and I think now more parents are in that category uh, as, as they're becoming politicized. At the same time, I think it is true. There's still a significant minority uh, group of parents who are, uh, it's not a good faith thing. <laughs> They're not actively involved. They've in effect seen the school system as free babysitting, and they're just glad to have the kids out of the house so that they can do whatever. And so that's, a, that's an irresponsibility. And unfortunately, we do have a lot of parents in that category as well. But I tend to think of those three groups as, uh, uh, as, as, as I don't, know, I don't, don't want to say that they're equally represented, but uh, I think the, the, the group that Professor Hill was talking about is the largest group. Well, with that, unfortunately, we have run yeah. out of time, but I wanna tell you guys, if you enjoyed this conversation, you have burning questions that you wanna ask Dr. Hill or Dr. Hicks, you can join them on Clubhouse. 
Uh, you can visit atlassociety.org forward slash events and see when their upcoming clubhouse conversations are. We also have Atlas Intellectuals with Dr. Hicks once a month. So uh, check all of that out on our events page. So with that, thank you, Jason and Stephen, and thank all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this video and want to see more conversations like these, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org forward slash donate. And be sure to tune in next week when The Case for Mars author Robert Zubrin will be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks. All right. Thanks, Abby. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Lawrence.